Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today's episode is going to be the first part of a two-part, occasionally personal journey through one of the better summers for films during the 1980s, the summer of 1986. But to get to the summer of 1986, I have to go back a little further, back to 1973. I was a five-year-old kid. My parents were recently divorced, and my mom was dating a guy who ran a junkyard in Gardena, California. Toby wanted to make a movie, and he had already spent a year preparing. He'd write the movie, produce it, direct it, star in it, and, when it came time, released the movie into theaters through his own company, the H.B. Halicki Junkyard and Mercantile Company. By the time Gone in 60 Seconds was released in July of 1974, my mom and Toby had broken up, but the movie bug had bitten me hard. I had gotten to spend an entire summer watching a movie get made, and I even got to be in one of the scenes. I knew when I was five that I wanted to make movies when I grew up. My dad had encouraged my film obsession. During the summer of 1977, when I was nine years old, he had enrolled me in a filmmaking class at Whaley Park, run by the Long Beach City Parks and Recreation Department. We worked with 8mm cameras, and I made two movies that summer. One a short, would-be sequel to Star Wars, which was not very good, and one a stop-motion documentary of the demolition of a gas station around the corner from the park. It was about as cinema verite as a nine-year-old who hadn't learned anything about film language yet. And I actually won an award for that one and not some lousy participation trophy either. That film, like the Star Wars wannabe, has long been lost to time. Eventually, thanks to smaller lightweight VHS video cameras that were hitting the market in the early 80s, the ability for anyone to create a story was in the hands of practically anyone who could afford one. I had one of those cameras at my house, and my friends and I would make crazy videos. One favorite was a parody homage to Late Night with David Letterman, where we do our own versions of that show's gags and bits, including taking a camera onto the Giant Dipper roller coaster at the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. I would graduate from Aptos High on June 14, 1985, and the very next day, I packed my late 60s VW Bug and drove down to Los Angeles, determined to break into the movie business. But it didn't quite work out the way I expected. I spent most of the year going to Long Beach City College during the day, and at night I was working as a file clerk at the law firm of Buck, Maloney, Nemo, and Amarato. I was depressed, frustrated with school, I hated my job, I had no time to date, and I was unable to continue to afford living in Los Angeles on my meager earnings, even with a couple of roommates. So at the end of the spring semester, I packed up my car and headed back home to Santa Cruz for the summer to reassess my life my choices, and how I was going to become a filmmaker. The next day, my high school friends and I went to see the new Rodney Dangerfield movie Back to School at the UA Riverfront Twin in Santa Cruz. And on our way out of the theater, I picked up an application, filled it out, and turned it in. 
On Monday, I got a call from the theater manager. Could I come in for an interview the next day? The interview went well, and I was hired. I would be starting on Friday, and I was to be at the theater at 4 o'clock for training. At the appointed time, I'm out front of the building, knocking on the door. I'm let in by a gentleman dressed like a general manager, but not the guy I interviewed with. When I introduce myself, Joe, the manager, informs me that the manager I interviewed with on Tuesday had been fired on Wednesday, along with the entire staff, which included me. Ever the quick thinker, I pointed out to Joe that I didn't know the manager or anyone who worked at the theater, that I was living hundreds of miles away up until a week earlier, and that if the entire staff had been fired on Wednesday, there was a good chance he was in need of new staff. I offered him a deal. Give me a chance to work for two weeks. And if I wasn't one of the best, hardest-working employees he ever had, I'd take my one paycheck and leave, and he'd never have to see me again. A couple hours later, I was learning how to make popcorn. The Riverfront Twin was opening Karate Kid Part 2 in the 500-seat main auditorium, and Back to School was playing in the 250-seat secondary theater. It was a wild night, and at the end, I was exhausted, and I was happier than I had been in a very long time. But the first part of the summer season starts earlier than mid-June. In 1986, that would be May 9th with TriStar's Pictures sci-fi comedy, Short Circuit. Directed by John Batham, his eighth film in ten years, Short Circuit would star Ali Sheedy as an animal caregiver who helps an escape government prototype robot who becomes self-aware after being hit by a bolt of lightning. The affable comedy also stars Steve Gutenberg, Fisher Stevens, and Austin Pendleton, and would become a minor hit with more than $40 million in ticket sales. Other films that would open on May 9th were Albert Pune's Dangerously Close from Canon Films, Duncan Gibbons' Fire with Fire from Paramount Pictures, Raju Patel's In the Shadows of Kilimanjaro from Scotty Brothers, and William Fruitt's Canadian horror film Killer Party from MGM. Nowadays, a Wednesday opener usually only happens in conjunction with a national holiday like Thanksgiving or the 4th of July. In the 1980s, Wednesday releases were far more common. On May 14th, Universal Pictures would release Sweet Liberty, the second movie to be written and directed by Alan Alda, and his first project since the end of MASH four years earlier. Alda played a history professor in North Carolina who has to deal with a film company making an adaptation of one of his American Revolution-set historical novels in his hometown. Michael Caine and Michelle Pfeiffer are the actors who play the leads in the movie. Bob Hoskins is the uncultured screenwriter who has changed the novel into a steamy tale of lust and betrayal. And Saul Rubinick as the supercilious director. Lois Childs from Moonraker and screen legend Lillian Gish in her penultimate film role also star in the film. I remember not particularly liking it when it came out, and I've never given it a second chance in the ensuing 34 years. Audiences would be mostly indifferent to the film. There were still enough Alan Alda fans out there, however, to help the film make $14.2 million during its theatrical run. Also released on May 14th was the brilliant Laurie Anderson concert movie Home of the Brave from Cinecom Pictures. Even if you're not a fan of Laurie Anderson's, this movie is as good and arguably better than Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense. And at least at this moment, 
you can catch it for free in its entirety on YouTube. The 1986 summer movie season would officially start on Friday, May 16th, when Paramount Pictures would release Tony Scott's Top Gun. I don't need to tell you much about the movie. Everyone freaking knows about Top Gun. Tom Cruise was on his way to becoming a movie star before Top Gun, and this would shoot him into the stratosphere. The film would also make Val Kilmer a star, give Kelly McGillis her second big film in a year and a half, and bring renewed notice to a number of newer talents to the screen, including Meg Ryan, Anthony Edwards, John Stockwell, Rick Rosevich, Tim Robbins, and Adrian Pazdar. The film would become the highest-grossing film of the year, with more than $176.7 million worth of tickets sold, and would set more records when it was released on home video in March 1987. Top Gun would be the first movie released on VHS at a retail price under $30, and it would sell nearly 3 million tapes in just its first year. No other major films would be released against Top Gun, but several independent and foreign language films would. Philippe Mora's Australian drama Death of a Soldier, starring James Colburn and Red Brown from Scotty Brothers Pictures, Hector Oliveira's Funny, Dirty Little War from Cinevista, Rick King's Hard Choices from Lorimar, a barely-remembered indie featuring a rare acting role from John Sayles outside of one of his own movies, Luigi Magni's 1977 historical drama In Nome del Papare from Kino International, which would finally get an American release nine years after it came out in its native Italy, Rob Nilsson's On the Edge from Scurrus Pictures, and starring Bruce Dern in a powerhouse performance, and International Film Exchange would release Agnes Varda's Vagabond at the Lincoln Plaza Cinemas at Broadway and 63rd in New York City. Wednesday, May 21st, saw the release of Empire Pictures' Crawl Space, directed by David Schmoller. When Schmoller wrote his first draft of the screenplay, he wrote it as an anti-Vietnam war story about a returning vet who recreates a POW camp in his attic. Producer Charles Ban, who was behind such grade Z movies as Sword Kill, The Beastmaster, and Ghoulies, suggested that instead of a Vietnam vet, Schmoller changed the leading character into a Nazi and told the filmmaker he could get Klaus Kinski to play the role. The shooting of the movie was so chaotic due to Kinski's erratic behavior that more than a decade later, Schmoller would make a short film with him discussing the making of the movie. And the title of the documentary would echo the sentiments many of the other cast members and crew would express to the filmmaker, Please kill Mr. Kinski. And while Kinski is always at least interesting to watch on screen, one can only imagine how good a movie this could have been if a more stable actor was playing the lead, or if it was produced by another company that didn't specialize in cheap, quickly made schlock. One other film would open on the 21st, Richard Lerner and Louis McAdams' Whatever Happened to Kerouac from New Yorker Films, which opened at the Cinema Studio 2 on the Upper East Side of New York City. May 23rd would see the release of two would-be hits, George P. Cosmatos' Cobra from Warner Brothers and Brian Gibson's Poltergeist II, The Other Side from MGM. Cobra would be the first movie under Sylvester Stallone's two-picture deal with Canon Films. 
He was originally scheduled to star in a remake of the Jimmy Cagney classic Angels with Dirty Faces, co-starring Christopher Reeve, but the backlash to such an idea in the pre-internet age was so strong, Stallone whipped out his rejected screenplay for Beverly Hills Cop, which we covered a bit in our Don Simpson episode, and did some additional rewriting to create this action drama about an LAPD cop who takes on a group of supremacists who want to create a new world order. The film's first cut was so violent the film was given an X rating. Stallone and the editing team ended up cutting down the movie from two hours and four minutes to an hour and 24 minutes, and the film would open to the number one spot. But it would quickly tank, at least in America, because it looks and feels like a cheap-ass canon film. International audiences ate the thing up, earning the film more than two-thirds of its worldwide gross internationally. Today, the film is best known for its catchphrase. The disease, but I'm the cure. Poltergeist 2 was the wholly unnecessary sequel to the surprise 1982 hit film. Most of the Freeling family returns, as do the ghosts that are following them. But without producer-co-writer Steven Spielberg or director Toby Hooper, the film is a pale imitation of the previous entry. Although it is far better than the next film in the series, 1988's Poltergeist 3, or the even worse 2015 remake. One other movie would open on May 23rd, Tage Danielson's Ronja Robersdotter, based on the Swedish family book series from Pippi Longstocking creator Astrid Lindgren from 1900 releasing. May 30th would see five films released into theaters, Lamberto Bava's Demons from Ascot Entertainment, Peter Wang's A Great Wall from Orion Classics, Andrew Lane's Jake Speed from New World Pictures, and Rob Nilsson's Signal 7, his second film released into theaters in three weeks, presented by Francis Ford Coppola. The fifth title was Big Trouble, from Columbia Pictures, which would totally live up to its name. The movie would start out as a not-really-sequel to the 1979 hit film The In-Laws, reuniting co-stars Alan Arkin and Peter Falk, along with the original film's writer, Andrew Bergman, who was supposed to direct this film. A twist on double indemnity, Bergman would start the production, but would leave during shooting, and he would be replaced by, of all people, John Cassavetes, at the personal request of longtime friend and working partner Falk. Arkin is an insurance agent in Los Angeles who needs to come up with $400,000 in order to send his gifted triplets to Yale, and hatches a scheme with sexy Beverly D'Angelo to kill her dying husband Falk so they can collect on his newly updated insurance policy. In addition to Arkin, D'Angelo, and Falk, the supporting cast includes Valerie Curtin, Paul Dooley, Charles Durning, Richard Liebertini, and Robert Stack. You'd think that combination of actors, filmmaker, and story would make for one hell of a film, and you'd be kind of correct. It is hell to watch. It's painfully unfunny for a comedy, and a sad ending to one of the best directing careers in cinema history. Even sadder, when you realize this comes off the heels of Love Streams, perhaps Cassavetes' masterpiece. But it's not all his fault. He didn't start the project, and he didn't get to finish it either. The studio would take the movie away from him and edit it against his wishes. Bergman would take his name off the project as the writer, 
taking the name Warren Bogle, a former pitcher for the Oakland Athletics, who pitched 16 games in 1968, and Columbia would dump the film into a handful of theaters. The reviews were terrible, and after all these years, there's never been any kind of attempt to reevaluate it. It would play at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City in 2017 as part of a Cassavetes retrospect, but that's about it. There were two more movies that opened in May, whose dates I cannot 100% verify. The first was French Quarter Undercover from Shapiro Entertainment, featuring the late, great Michael Parks. The second was Chuck Vincent's Sex Appeal. If you know who Chuck Vincent was, you know what type of films he made. Porn and softcore porn. Sex Appeal was one of the latter. It opened sometime in May in some markets, but I can't even find any specific regions it opened in, just that it opened in May of 1986. And if you don't know who Chuck Vincent was, keep it that way for your own sanity. His films were shit. Speaking of Toby Hooper, his Invaders from Mars remake would be one of four new movies released on June 6th. Invaders from Mars would be Hooper's second movie in his contract with Cannon Films after 1985's disastrous Life Force. Hunter Carlson, the then eight-year-old son of Karen Black and Paris, Texas writer L.M. Kit Carson, stars as a boy who seems to be the only person in a small town who notices there's an invasion of aliens taking over the locals. The film suffers from Cannon's typical budget constraints, and it's unlikely any filmmaker could have made as good a movie as Hooper did with only $7 million. The creature and visual effects were created by John Dykstra and Stan Winston, which are probably the best thing about the movie. It would open in seventh place with $2.046 million and would have grossed less than $5 million when it left theaters a few weeks later. The De Laurentiis Entertainment Group would release two movies on June 6. The first was Michael Jones's My Little Pony the Movie. Co-produced by Marvel Productions, this rush job of animation created 300,000 animation cells in just 10 weeks. For comparison's sake, the average Disney animated movie would create more than 460,000 animation cells over the course of three to five years for a film of a similar running time. Being a cheap knockoff, the quality of the film sucks at every level, and audiences would react accordingly. Its opening weekend gross of $674,000 from 421 theaters would be amongst the worst openers of the year. And although it would continue to add screens in the second and third weeks, the per screen average would continue to fall. When all was said and done, the film would gross but $5.95 million, and a planned sequel film would be changed to a television show, which would only run one season and ten episodes. The second movie was John Irvin's Raw Deal, and it was produced under less than ideal situations. Dino De Laurentiis had been trying to make a movie version of Phil K. Dick's novel Total Recall for years, and needed some influx of cash to help move that project along. De Laurentiis had put all of his money into his new distribution company and new studio space in North Carolina, and what producer wouldn't throw him $11 million and an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie in the hopes of making some good returns? This time around, Arnie is a former FBI agent who becomes a small-town sheriff who is recruited by a colleague 
to infiltrate and dismantle the organization of a Chicago mob boss who has killed the FBI agent's son. The movie is a total mess, and Schwarzenegger would only make the movie to get out of his contract with De Laurentiis to make more Conan movies and to lobby for the leading role in Total Recall, which the producer didn't think the actor was right for. Of course, Schwarzenegger would eventually star in Total Recall, but due in part to the failure of this movie to achieve its expected numbers, De Laurentiis would end up filing for bankruptcy, and Kiroko Pictures would pick up the movie rights to the novel. Harry Winner's Space Camp from 20th Century Fox was not a very good movie about a group of young people attending a NASA space camp who find themselves accidentally launched into space on a shuttle. It also had the unfortunate timing of being in post-production when the Challenger shuttle accident occurred. The movie features a series of ever-increasing contrivances and coincidences to get the kids into space and, they, and then get them back down to Earth. The $18 million movie would be the final film produced by ABC Motion Pictures, a short-lived production company for the television network that also produced Young Doctors in Love, Silkwood, The Flamingo Kid, and Pritzi's Honor. The kids in space were Leah Thompson, Kelly Preston, Larry B. Scott, Tate Donovan, and the youngest of the group, 11-year-old Leif Phoenix, who several years later would go back to his birth name, Joaquin. Other movies opening on June 6th were Faith Hubley's The Cosmic Eye from Upfront Films, opening at the Film Forum in Lower Manhattan, Lewis Gilbert's Not Quite Paradise from New World Pictures, which opened at the Coronet Theater across the street from the flagship Bloomingdale store on New York City's Upper East Side, Larry Yust's Say Yes from Cinetel Films, which opened in a moderate national release, and Mehdi Chowdhouse's Tea in the Harem from Cinecom Pictures, which opened at the Lincoln Plaza Cinemas. John Hughes's Ferris Bueller's Day Off opened on Wednesday, June 11th. There's a lot of people who hate this movie, and especially hate Ferris, who see him as the true villain of the movie, a vainglorious symbol of the elite class, who has almost everyone fooled into thinking he's cool, has the hottest girlfriend in school twisted around his finger, and can bullshit his way in and out of any situation without consequences. And there's a lot of people who think Ferris really is a righteous dude. And then, and then there are the likes of Richard Roper, who think Ferris Bueller is some kind of suicide prevention film. Okay, boomer. It's been years since I've seen Ferris, and I used to really like it. But to be completely honest, I haven't had any interest in watching it again. Outside of The Breakfast Club, which holds a very special place in my heart, and Some Kind of Wonderful, which really is, I've kind of lost interest in John Hughes movies. But in 1986, I was one of the 18 million-plus people who spent upwards of $70 million buying tickets to see the film in theaters. That would make the film the 10th highest-grossing film of the entire year. Gabriel Auer's French Uruguayan prison drama The Eyes of the Birds from Icarus Pictures would open at the Film Forum on Wednesday, June 11th. It's a pretty messed-up movie, fiction based on details of what happens in prisons that were gleaned from months of research and hours of interviews. 
Another four films would open on Friday, June 13th. Back to School was previously covered in more detail on our recent series on Orion Pictures. Its director, Alan Metter, passed away last month on June 7th. This would be his one success as a filmmaker. He would continue to make films for another decade and a half, including the final Police Academy movie, Mission to Moscow, and the first Growing Pains reunion movie. Rest in peace, Mr. Metter. In the 1970s, Marshall Brickman would win an Oscar for co-writing Annie Hall with Woody Allen, with whom he also collaborated with on Sleeper and Manhattan, before turning to directing with the oddball 1980 sci-fi comedy Simon, which we covered a bit on our first Orion episode. The Manhattan Project would be his third film as director and would be his first non-comedy as a writer or director. Christopher Collet stars as a high school student who decides to protest his mother's possibly dating a nuclear scientist by breaking into the scientist's lab, stealing some plutonium, and building a nuclear bomb, which he plans on bringing to New York City as his science fair project. Collet was supported by a great group of adult actors, including Jill Eikenberry as his mom, John Lithgow as the scientist, and John Mahoney as the head of a military investigation team trying to track the missing plutonium. Cynthia Nixon plays Collet's love interest, and it would be the second time in two years that a future co-star from Sex and the City would be in that role, after he co-starred with Sarah Jessica Parker in Firstborn in 1984. The movie would also feature early roles for Richard Jenkins and Robert Sean Leonard, who would only be Robert Leonard at this point of his career. The movie received mixed reviews from critics, and stalled at the box office, opening in ninth place with just $1.5 million on its way to a $3.9 million total gross. The third movie that opened this weekend was Neil Jordan's Mona Lisa, which would bring him international acclaim. Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, men have named you. You're so like the lady the mystic smile she is mysterious unattainable he is decent ordinary the business is different but the rules are still the same dependent upon each other go look at her best you should notice these things the little things. They are different in every way. Did anybody ever teach you manners? Do you want to work for me? No! That's show me I'm fired. All right, you're fired. Lovely. I'm fired and you're straight walking. A woman. It's lovely. And a man. Yeah. It's lovely. Looking for something. They're so young. Things can happen out there. If you last a year and a half on that street, you're looking. I was looking. I'm going out. Looking for someone. I can't go down. But you could. You? What'd you do? Drive! George! If Alison finds you, cut your face off. Drive! What'd you? You don't need anybody, do you? I do. Me too. Something better. 
Well, that's your main bet. Tommy, dirty, nasty, slimy, kicking. She moved. <laughs> Bob Hoskins, Kathy Tyson, Michael Caine, Mona Lisa. Sometimes love is a strange and wicked game. Bob Hoskins had the role of a lifetime as a low-level working-class gangster recently released from prison who was assigned as a driver and bodyguard for a high-priced call girl by his boss, in part so the driver can gather info on one of the call girl's regulars for the purposes of blackmail. There used to be a joke in the late 80s that Michael Caine seemed to be in every movie made, which of course couldn't possibly be true, but it sure felt like it. Mona Lisa would be the second movie featuring Michael Caine released into American theaters in just five weeks and was a reminder of just how great he could be when the material he chose could elevate him. Proof in point, a year later, Michael Caine would be on movie screens in Jaws the Revenge, which started filming six months after the release of Mona Lisa. Caine would miss winning his first Academy Award for his role in Hannah and Her Sisters because he'd be in the Bahamas shooting this notorious turkey. And a year after that, he'd be starring in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, one of the absolute best films in his 150-plus film career. Mona Lisa would also feature Robbie Coltrane in a rare dramatic role. Hoskins would win a number of accolades for his role, including a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Motion Picture Drama, but he would lose to industry favorite Paul Newman for The Color of Money. Made at a cost of less than $3 million dollars, Mona Lisa would gross nearly $5.8 million in the United States while never playing in more than 162 theaters in any given week. It would be the first of two hit films from Island Pictures this summer. We'll get to the other one on the next episode. Gil Bettman's Never Too Young to Die. I don't know how to describe it any better than to quote the description from Turner Classic Movies. High school gymnast Lance Stargrove never understood why his estranged father Drew kept his distance. Drew had his reasons. He was a secret agent. And after his murder at the hands of the hermaphroditic terrorist Velvet Von Ragnar, Lance finds himself recruited by Drew's gorgeous partner, Donja Deering, to help derail the criminal mastermind's plans. John Stamos, in his debut feature film, stars as Lance. His dad, one-time 007 George Lazenby, the gorgeous partner, Vanity, and the hermaphroditic terrorist, Velvet Von Ragnar, none other than Gene fucking Simmons. And this movie is as bad as it sounds, and that's understandable once you realize it was written and produced by Stephen Paul, whose previous movie was 1982's Slapstick of Another Kind, the god-awful adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's brilliant novel Slapstick, a film so bad it opened in America two years after it was made. Paul would go on to even greater cinematic criminality when he would write and produce the Baby Genius series of movies. 
This movie, however, would not spawn an endless series of worthless sequels. Once was bad enough. Opening in just 75 theaters, never too young to die, would gross an anemic $129,508. And the eponymously named distributor, Paul Entertainment, would stop tracking grosses after those first three days. One other film opened in limited release on June 13th, Glenn Petrie's Belazare the Cajun from Scurrus Pictures. It's arguably Armand Asante's single best role, playing a village healer in 1859 Louisiana who gets involved in a conflict between his fellow native Cajuns and newly arrived settlers. The film also stars Robert Duvall, Michael Scheffling, Stephen McHattie, and Will Patton. Seek it out, although it's really hard to find at this time, but it'll be definitely worth your while. And just for shit and giggles, New World Pictures would have a sneak preview of their July horror comedy vamp in a few theaters in major markets because, you know, Friday the 13th. Another week and another Wednesday opener. On the 18th, it would be Ivan Reitman's Legal Eagles. This was the textbook example of a practice known as agency packaging. The film was written by Jim Cash and Jack Epps, two clients of CAA, the Creative Artists Agency. They originally wrote it as a buddy comedy for Dustin Hoffman and CAA client Bill Murray. When Murray dropped out, he would be replaced by another CAA client, Robert Redford, but Redford was interested in making a romantic comedy, so the script would be rewritten, changing one of the lead characters to a woman. Frank Price, the head of Universal Pictures at the time and a CAA client himself, would pick the project up and sign Reitman, another CAA client, to direct. They would sign Deborah Winger and Daryl Hannah, two more CAA clients for the female leads, and what was originally supposed to be a buddy comedy that was budgeted for less than $25 million became a $40 million-plus romantic comedy made for all the wrong reasons, mostly so CAA could pocket more than a million dollars in commissions from a single project. It's a really crappy movie, Reitman's worst to date, and right up there with Six Days, Seven Nights, Evolution, and My Super Ex-Girlfriend as future Reitman failures. It's one of Redford's worst movies, one of Hannah's worst movies, and definitely one of Winger's worst. In fact, she was so pissed about the final film and being treated as a commodity by her agent instead of, of an artist that she would quit the agency right after it came out. Redford is an associate district attorney in Manhattan, Winger a private attorney representing Hannah's artist. The plot revolves around a stolen painting and there's an amazing supporting cast of Christine Baranski, Roscoe Lee Brown, David Clennon, Brian Dennehy, Brian Doyle Murray, Stephen Hill, and Terrence Stamp. But it's not worth it. Legal Eagles is in that dead zone between not being good enough to be entertaining and not being bad enough to be fun. If you have the chance to see it, just skip it. And now we're back to Friday, June 20th. The Karate Kid Part 2. Only two studio movies this summer had opening weekends to themselves. One was Top Gun. The other was Karate Kid 2. The stars Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita were back, 
as were director John G. Avildsen and writer Robert Mark Kamen. This time around, Daniel and Mr. Miyagi head to Japan to assist Miyagi's dad before he passes. Daniel meets a new girl, and he learns a new karate move. It's an acceptable movie, not as original or exciting as the first film, but it would actually gross more than that first one, or the eventual third one, and was the fourth highest grossing movie of the year. The 27th would see five more wide releases. Albert Magnoli would follow the incredible success of Purple Rain with American Anthem. 1984 U.S. Olympic gold medalist Mitch Gaylord plays Steve, a football player turned gymnast, training to join the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team. What a stretch. Janet Jones, the future Mrs. Wayne Gretzky, plays the love interest. It's a really bad film and a fairly lousy soundtrack, featuring some of the better artists of the era, including NXS and Stevie Nicks, plus three songs from Andy Taylor, the original guitarist for Duran Duran. The $7 million film would gross less than $5 million during its quick theatrical run. Muppet creator Jim Henson always tried to push the boundaries when it came to what could be done with puppetry on camera. After the relative disappointing returns for The Dark Crystal four years earlier, Henson tried to push the boundaries once again, working with Monty Python's Terry Jones and producer George Lucas to bring the world of Labyrinth to life. Originally planned as a straight fantasy movie, the script would be significantly rewritten to feature a series of musical sequences when David Bowie was cast as as Jareth the Goblin King. Between Jones, Elaine May, children's author Dennis Lee, and even George Lucas himself, the screenplay would go through more than 20 drafts between 1983 and 1985 when shooting began. Although she would play leading roles in Dario Argento's Phenomena and Linda Pfefferman's Seven Minutes in Heaven, this would be the first major studio film for the then 15-year-old Jennifer Connelly, who would be, outside of Bowie, the only other major human performer in the movie. Her Sarah would be the catalyst for the story, a young woman who must travel through a labyrinth to find her baby brother after she wished the kid would be taken away by goblins. I'm always fascinated by the casting process of movies, and Labyrinth has one of the more fascinating series of possible alternative castings around. For the role of the Goblin King, Henson first wanted to create a puppet for the role before deciding it should be a live actor. Henson and Lucas first considered Kevin Klein and British actor Simon McCorkendale for the role, then decided they needed a charismatic musical star. The other choices for Jareth besides Bowie included Mick Jagger, Michael Jackson, Prince, and Sting. Once Henson decided on Bowie, it would take him almost two years to convince the star to commit, although it would be claimed that Bowie was pretty hooked from the beginning. The film would open in eighth place with $3.5 million from 1,141 theaters and dropped all the way down to 13th place in its second week. It would finish with $12.7 million in ticket sales, slightly more than half its budget. And I hate to admit it, but I really didn't like Labyrinth when it first came out, and it would be another 25 years before I'd watch it again. 
I won't say that I love it now, but I have appreciated it more in the present day than I did when I was younger. Peter Himes' Running Scared from MGM was a bizarre mix of comedy and action featuring the bizarre partnership of Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal as Northside Chicago police officers who are trying to take down up-and-coming drug dealer Jimmy Smits. It's literally the polar opposite of Hyam's previous film, 2010, The Year We Made Contact, but it would be almost as successful at nearly half the cost, and it would be another eight years before Hyam's had another hit film, the 1994 Jean-Claude Van Damme sci-fi film, Time Cop. Ruthless People from Disney's adult label, Touchstone Pictures, would be the fourth and final pairing of the directing team of David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and Jerry Zucker. Danny DeVito played a poor schmuck who plans on killing his wife, Bette Midler, so he can inherit her $15 million fortune and run away with his mistress. But when he gets home to do the job one day, he discovers that she has been kidnapped by Judge Reinhold and Helen Slater. Personally, I didn't really like it when it came out, and I've never felt the need to watch it again, but I will give it all the props possible because it would be the film that introduced the world to Bill Pullman. Kudos on that, Zaz. For a while, Ruthless People would be Disney's highest-grossing movie outside of the kiddie movies with multiple re-releases. It'd be more popular than their previous film, Top Secret, but it wouldn't come close to matching the success of Airplane. David Zucker would go on to direct the Naked Gun movies based on the team's exceptional but short-lived series Police Squad. Jerry Zucker would transition away from comedies with his first solo effort being Ghost. And Jim Abrahams would make two hotshot films with Charlie Sheen. Sadly, they'd never team up again, and it's been 12 to 21 years since any of them have directed a movie. Other movies opening on the 27th, including David Dawkins' Flood Stage from Spring Films, which opened at the Bleecker Street Cinemas, and Peter Shimoni's Spring Symphony from Green Tree Films, starring Natasha Kinski, which opened at the 57th Street Playhouse. And that's our look at the early films of summer 1986. Thank you for listening. Our next episode will feature the films of July and August 1986. Demi Moore and Rob Lowe want to talk about last night. Kurt Russell finds big trouble in Little China. Prince finds himself under the cherry moon. Sigourney Weaver goes on a hunt after some xenomorphs with some space marines. Jack Nicholson gives Meryl Streep some heartburn. Stephen King adapts one of his own stories. Anthony Michael Hall goes out of bounds. Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason have nothing in common. George Lucas presents the very first Marvel Comics movie to the screen. Jason Voorhees lives again. John Cusack has one crazy summer. One word, Brundlefly. We begin the Hannibal Lecter cinematic universe. Won't you stand by me? And Toby Rehooper releases his second movie of the summer. And most importantly, we get to meet an amazing young filmmaker, Shelton Jackson Lee, with his mesmerizing debut theatrical feature film. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. 
As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which help the show get seen by more potential listeners. And for July 2020, I have a special contest for listeners who've made it this far. If you rate and review the Film Jerk podcast on Apple Podcasts and then send me an email showing me your review, I will enter you into a contest to win a $10 iTunes gift card. If you're one of the several people who have already rated and reviewed the Film Jerk podcast, thank you. Please let me know who you are, and I will also enter you into the contest. The contest will end on July 31st, 2020. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at FilmJerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The Film Jerk Podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Oh, it's only time.